Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. The show is four years old now, but for listeners who might be new to all this, the idea is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Before we start, I'm delighted that this series of the podcast and the Material Matters Fair is brought to you by Bert Frank. The company craft beautiful lighting to order from its manufacturing base in Birmingham using traditional methods paired with the latest technology. Skilled craftsmen rely on years of expertise and the finest quality materials to produce timeless investment pieces that will last a lifetime, going to great lengths to ensure all clients can rely on a bespoke service and a unique, beautifully engineered product. I'm also delighted to tell you that this particular episode is sponsored by MAC, the specialist auction house and art consultancy dedicated to contemporary ceramics and craft. MAC presents a regular schedule of auctions throughout the year, with curated selections from international private collections that showcase the very best in contemporary ceramics and craft. Its latest is now viewing online, with the auction taking place on the 25th of May. Its inaugural auction of contemporary craft from the collection of Victoria, Lady de Rothschild, will take place on the 21st of September. To find out more, go to maclondon.com. That's maclondon.com. So, my guest this week is one of the UK's leading ceramic artists, Julian Stair. In March, Julian launched a new exhibition at the magnificent Sainsbury Centre near Norwich, entitled Art, Death and the Afterlife. The show is his response to the pandemic and the scenery jars and abstractive figurative forms invite visitors to meditate on the relationship between a clay vessel and the human body. To emphasise the point, in a number of the pots, the clay itself contains the cremated ashes of people donated by their loved ones. Julian, who was awarded an OBE in 2022, has exhibited internationally since the 1980s and made his name making beautiful, pared-back, everyday forms. His work is in 30 public collections, including the British Museum and the V&A. Julian, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? Uh, I'm fine, apart from a slight cold, which probably will impact on my voice, but I hope it won't be too croaky. That's, that's all right. I'm sure the listeners will forgive you. Thank you very much for doing all this. Was that reasonably accurate, that intro? Uh, yes, thank you very much indeed. I'll try and live up to that. Okay, good. Just so listeners know, we had your wife, Claire Wilcox, on the show back in 2021, which means you're the first husband and wife couple I've interviewed separately. It's a material matters first. We're we're on it. <laughs> and I won't let rivalry get in the way of the order. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. Well, she had a book out and now you have this show out. It seems the opposite time to do them both. We have a tradition on the show of trying to give the conversation a bit of context, really. It dates back to when we started and we used to interview guests in their studios. We're on Zoom today and I can see, I suspect, you're probably at home. But just to uphold the tradition, it'd be good to know where and how you work. What does your studio look like? Okay, my studio's in London. I've been there for quite a while, so I'm kind of quite established and comfortable in a space. I'm lucky for London. It's a it's a good sized studio. It's around 2,000 square feet or somewhere there around. So I'm very self-sufficient. And my library there, that's really important. So I've got all my ceramic reference books, hundreds and thousands of copies of articles and things from all the historical research I did. People comment often when they come in to the studio for the first time, oh, it's very tidy. I think it's a reasonably organized space, but that's the way I kind of have to have it to kind of work. 
does your studio reflect your mind? Do you have a tidy mind? Goodness, that's like kind of, how do I judge my mind? Uh, yes, it is. That's exactly what I'm asking. Probably you have to <laughs> get other people to make that judgment. Some people say I'm kind of quite precise or kind of systematic or logical. So perhaps it does. Yes, it's kind of laid out and organized and I'm certainly not OCD. So it's not where order becomes, uh, you know, the dominating factor. At the moment, because of the exhibition, it's in the messiest state it's been for ages. So it's, uh, it needs a big kind of clear out. Well, let's talk about this exhibition because it's at the Sainsbury Centre, which is a pretty extraordinary foster building near Norwich. It's entitled Art, Death and Afterlife, and it's your response to the pandemic. I get the sense that you feel strongly that there's been a lack of recognition of the people who lost their lives during the epidemic. Yes, it's quite interesting. Obviously, the pandemic was a new experience for everyone, you know, new in multiple generations in a century and all of that. So we all kind of had to adjust to it, understand it as it unrolled, unfurled. And it was a shock. You know, it's, it's a shock. I still don't think that the country and perhaps all of us and some more than others, some who are bereaved and directly impacted have fully come to terms with. Because 200,000 plus people in the UK alone and virtually 7 million globally, that's an extraordinary kind of state of affairs. And there's an interesting statistic, which I think is probably on the cautious side, that for every death, there's eight people who've been significantly impacted, Mm. close friends, family, partners, parents, children. So if you take 200,000 people and you times that by eight, that's one and a half million people in the country. That means that we will know someone who has been directly impacted and probably more. And at the beginning of the pandemic, there was discussion in the press about how were the arts going to respond to this? How were the arts going to kind of help us understand it? Were they able to mediate it? There was a lot of interest in how the arts in general, and I do mean across the whole board, were going to respond. As of yet, I don't think there's been a fantastically comprehensive response. Of course, some people have responded, but certainly as the pandemic was kind of unfolding and, you know, in the first year in particular, there were these awful death counts, you know, which were being kind of uh, broadcast on the news every day. You know, so many people died today and it was individually, then it was tens, hundreds. And then in the end, I just found it very, very disturbing that you were having huge numbers of people reported as having died. And it was all just reduced to statistics. It was just a kind of numbers game. I think when that happens, we kind of lose the impact. It's like, do you know how much a million pounds is? Do you know how much a billion pounds is? When numbers get to a certain scale, they just become numbers. And I'm afraid to say, I think that was part of the pandemic. So as you know, I've actually kind of addressed death intermittently over my career over 20 years now, maybe the last 25 years or something. And the last year or so, I really felt that it was time to come back and examine how we deal with death in Britain in the 21st century. So yes, it is my response to the pandemic. Yes. Did the pandemic, beyond the kind of lockdown and everything else, did it have a personal effect on you? How do you define personal effect? Yes and yes. As an individual, I was affected. I think in some ways, there were lots of people who were very thrown by it. You know, they lost the rhythm and the routine of their lives having to work in isolation, not going to work, working from home, doing Zooms as we're doing now without getting into pop psychology. I think 
that had a disorientating and unsettling and at times damaging effect on people. On an individual level, um, uh, as an artist, I do spend vast amounts of time in the studio on my own and I had a very big project to do. So I went into the studio every day as per normal. The only thing is my work colleagues and I, we decided to solo work and therefore I didn't have company in the studio, but I'm used to spending large amounts of time on my own. So on one psychological level, if you're going to use that word, didn't impact on me a great deal. I think artists by nature are quite solitary creatures at times, and they're also quite resilient and self-sufficient. I'm slightly nervous about talking about work in terms of my personal history, because I am anti this kind of confessional stance that seems to inform a great deal of art. So my mother died in January 21. She died of Alzheimer's, but actually, ironically, it was the immunization that actually pushed her over the edge. So she was very frail, directly, indirectly. It was the final push for her, but that wasn't a kind of unexpected death that you know, came out of the blue for many people, which is what COVID did. So yes and yes is, I suppose, a short answer to that question. Mm, I'm sorry, Julian. I'm taking a slightly different tack, but <laughs> so how have you responded in that case? What can visitors expect to see in the installation? Well, like everything in art, there are various levels and factors that come together. What you can see is you can see a series of pots, domestic scale through to monumental, so just kind of two meters, which are redolent of the human body. And the reason why I've really focused on what I call figural jars is because the anthropomorphism of the vessel is central to this exhibition. I think it's one of the great, if not the central theme of ceramics, of, well, I'll say pots, actually. Let's not talk about material. Let's talk about genre of pots anyway. So we talk about pots in terms of the foot, the neck, the lip, the shoulder, the belly, etc. It is very much the human body. It's the symbolic identity of a pot. Plus the fact that pots by definition have historically been made to hold, to contain, and many cultures see the human body as a physical container for the soul or the spirit. And my big exhibition, which was 10, 11 years ago, Quietus, that's where the name Quietus came from, which is the Latin term for that split second, that microsecond that you can't even measure. The soul leaving the body. The soul leaving the body, you know, according to Christian faith. So the theme of the show is the human body interpreted through pots. Some of the pots are specifically made to hold the body after cremation. So they're the kind of scale and the volume that holds the body. And for me, this is a really important thing. It's not just an abstract reference to an idea. It's not a concept alone. This is, for me, the great strength of working in ceramics and making pots in particular, which is that you can have ideas which you know can be as strong or interesting as one can make them. But an absolutely essential part of them as artworks is that the material side, the form, the material, and in the case of parts, the use come together to actually deliver that. Kaji talked about, in a very lovely way in his book, Pioneer Pottery, and I'll massacre the quote, but he said, if you ask an artist to talk about his work, he won't be able to do so, because if he could, there wouldn't be any need to make the work in the first place. <laughs> could make this podcast quite short, Julian. <laughs> <laughs> he concludes by saying art does not carry a message. It is the message. Mm. Now, that was 
someone writing, how old was he in the 60s? He was probably in his 60s or 70s. His formative era was early 20th century cultural life. And that was a lovely, slightly romantic view by our current standards. My head of department at Camberwell in the mid-70s, Ian Old, didn't really believe in talking about ideas. Mm. It was this stance that the work said it all. Now, you could say, if you were going to be a bit sceptical about that approach, well, art has to kind of communicate itself through some kind of magical means. But actually, why has visual art evolved as a genre in human culture? Because it says things in ways that other forms of expression can't. So I fundamentally believe that art can say things without words and communicate directly. I would say that as a visual artist, although there are many artists where the concept is almost a kind of primary factor in the artwork can be a kind of secondary consideration. But coming back to parts, yes, there's a symbolic reference to the body that ties into the whole history of parts for me. And there's fantastic examples throughout history. They also hold, they're made to hold the human body after cremation. And then in case of seven pieces, uh, specific works in the show, I've embodied the pots with the people who I'm commemorating with their cremated ash. And therefore, these pots are not just references. They're not objects that carry a message, although they do carry a message. They don't carry a message alone. They actually serve a real purpose in human cultural social life by holding the body and then they themselves are the body because you can reach out or the families can reach out and touch the very parts of their family members who've died. So it's this extraordinary, for me, and this is why I make parts, it's this extraordinary multimodal capability of parts to exist in a kind of intellectual conceptual realm, to exist in a visual optical realm, but also to exist in a tactile, haptical realm. And then not only that, they become agents for our social lives. We make them to address and further our interactions as humans. And the pots, as Alfred Gell, the great late anthropologist, talks about, he believed that objects have agency as well as people. And I firmly believe that as well. These pots then have agency. So they exist on so many, so many levels simultaneously. And this is a humble pot. Well, humble, some of them, very big, others, possibly not so humble, but let's talk about that in a minute. I mean, one of the things that occurred to me as I was looking at the show is that all the pieces, all the pots had lids. Lids are important. Does this separate a pot from sculpture, I wonder, in this instance? Yes. And that is an external marker of declaration of my stance. They are pots. It's not to say that pots can't have formal interest or to use a kind of much overused phrase, they can't be sculptural. Of course, they address form. So they're material objects that exist in three-dimensional space. So of course, you know, look at Coper's work, you know, it's extraordinarily rich in terms of its formal complexity. This is Hans Koper we're talking Hans about. Hans Koper. Mm. I didn't want to make sculptures per se. I wanted to make parts, as I said, that cross this line of, if you like, detached observation, that parts that actually do engage in life. The human body is asymmetrical. Obviously, if you look at it from the front, it's different to you look at it the side. So I tried to take what I felt was the essence of those visual cues that, tell us we're looking at a form that is anthropomorphic um, to 
to take that essence and to make forms around that kind of capitalize on that. Yeah. They are sculptural. Maybe this is a semantic argument, whether you call them sculptures. I actually prefer to call them pots because for me, as I say, pots address so many complex ideas simultaneously. Mm. As you mentioned, some of the pots contain, by contain, I mean that part of the clay itself, the human ashes Mm. of people who those ashes were donated by members of their family. I'm wondering, how did you get people to come to be part of that project? I know you visited a Norwich Death Cafe, for example. What happens there? Yeah, it's a very loaded and delicate subject. Mm. If, as I planned to do, as I wanted to do with this exhibition, to actually ground the exhibition in real life, as I say, to make it material and to actually ground it in real experience. My aim all along was to see if we could involve local people to give it a very definite kind of geographical presence and interest people to come along and um, engage, collaborate with me Mm. as families. So from the beginning, this is obviously a very delicate decision to make. So we involved a local cruise counsellor from Norwich, whose cruise is a great organisation who counsel bereaved people in particular. And I'm not nervous about talking about death. So I had fantastic conversations with her. We talked very frankly and openly. I was always interested in the idea of death cafes, and I don't know if people know about them. No, I, well, I don't. Ah, well, if you Google death cafes, you will find that there have been thousands and thousands of death cafes that have taken place in Britain over the last 20 years, if not more. Right. And death cafes are, as the name says, they're organized occasions, events, where you can go along in a very safe, secure way to have a cup of tea and a slice of cake, which is kind of quite important, to meet with other people to talk around death from a variety of different perspectives. It can be talking about death in a very practical way of how do I plan my funeral? How do I deal with my family? How do I organize my affairs? Two, people talking about their fears, their worries, and also to people talking about their experience of death. They're safe spaces and they're organized at very local grassroots level. So there was a death cafe in Norwich, which existed prior to the exhibition and I got in contact with them and we held the first death cafe in the Sainsbury Centre as a result of the exhibition and that's now something that is carrying on. I also we had a what we called a kind of a workshop from university staff and medical people, people who were involved around the whole phenomena of death from medical through to practical through to counselling through to academic interest. And then in the end A local newspaper, the Eastern Daily Press, did a feature on the exhibition and they made it clear that if people were interested in having family members commemorated, then they could approach me. It was absolutely vital. I didn't want to go around Norwich with a wheelbarrow and say, bring out your dead. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. (laughs) You know, the old bat death practice. It was absolutely vital that people came forward totally of their own volition It had to be their decision, their decision alone. No encouragement, no coercion, no nothing from me. It was, you know, I was just completely passive in the whole process. And seven families came forward with a desire to commemorate eight of their family members. So there's six individual people who died. And then there's a couple, a mother and father, and their son came to me. They all came in a very brave way fantastically kind of brave 
they all contacted me and then I spoke to them individually and then we met and I explained what I was doing. Interestingly enough, for these people who came forward, I wasn't doing a sales pitch saying, oh, well, if you come to me, I can do this or I can do that. There was a very fundamental drive for these families to mark and commemorate their family members who died over the last few years. Again, I don't want to turn it too much into a confessional. I have had you know, experience of bereavement myself. And my view on bereavement is that one has to be as open and frank and direct as possible and acknowledge it and accept it in order to deal with it. And so I spoke to everyone who came forward in a way, you know, as someone who's gone through bereavement. And the thing about going through bereavement is that grief never kind of leaves you. It just kind of changes and operates in different ways and different levels of intensity over time. I've got to underline that the drive came from them. They really, really wanted to acknowledge the significance of, I hate the word loss because it's a terrible euphemism but I'll use it here. They wanted to acknowledge the depth and the significance of the loss that they felt when their family members died. And then I was very happy to kind of work with them. I explained and it developed and we had a meeting at the Sainsbury Centre and they met as a group. And that was really good because it took them out of that isolation that you have when you're experiencing death into a group dynamic and you can be with other people who directly experiencing the same thing as you. And I showed them the exhibition space. I showed them some work of mine that was in the Sainsbury Center. I showed them historical examples of reliquies that I have certainly found incredibly interesting and important, you know, myself as an artist. So I kind of contextualize what the plans were. And I was very lucky they kind of bought into it and they trusted me. And we followed through as planned, and I made seven cinery jars for these uh, eight people, and I tried to reflect the individuals as much as possible. We're talking about pots and sculpture, the, the difference earlier. I said to the families that I wasn't going to make a portrait as such. Right. Interesting. Because that's not what pots do, unless you're going to kind of model something, and that's not you know my way of working. But I tried to reflect aspects of their personality or presence. So I talked to everyone and I got a feel for the family members and their likes and their dislikes and their character. And um, when I talked to Claire about her father, Alan, turned out that Alan was a glazier by profession. Who had done the Sainsbury Centre with glazing. Exactly. Which is quite a lot. Well, it's, <laughs> He must have been very busy. It was amazing because he worked on UEA at times and knew the campus and that was wonderful. So it was an incredible kind of specificity there. And the fact that he worked on the Sainsbury Centre as well just made it, you know, it just kind of squared the circle. It was wonderful. So with Alan, who loved being outdoors, apparently, he liked working outdoors and light. He's the only one who was actually a kind of figural form of the seven jars. And I put a porcelain slip on him to create the impression of maximum quality of light. And then he was the only one who I glazed. The others were unglazed, but I put a glaze on him. So there was a degree of some sort of, you know, reference to him. In talking to Helen about Laurie, she was kind of describing him to me and she was talking about how Laurie kept his figure, you know, as a kind of, you know, a middle-aged man. And she said he had a good figure, you know, he kind of was slim. She said he had good shoulders and jackets hung well off him. And so with Laurie, I made a form 
that was kind of quite articulated, not exactly like a zoot suit, but nevertheless right. had good kind of definition. I see. You know, from the neck, you know, across to the shoulders. And then, you know, there was a good tight, you know, movement down to the foot. There was one character who's very feisty, Julian, uh, woman. And it says her family was robbed of saying goodbye to her in a traditional manner because she left her body to medical science. That's the one I was really intrigued by and how you dealt with the form there. Well, yes, absolutely. Jane, her daughter, came to me. The interesting thing, when you operate in this realm, you do get involved in life, you know, in all its dimensions. And her mother didn't want a funeral. Apparently, she was very forceful, very strong. She appeared that way. <laughs> a very strong-willed and difficult person. And she didn't want a funeral. And, and then she left her body to science. And... In the autumn, the family, the three children, got her ashes back because after the you know, medicine had finished whatever it did with you know, the body after she died, the body was then cremated and the ashes were returned to them. And so, in a way, this gave them an opportunity to come to terms with her death through the ritual of making the cinnery jar. And it gave them some sort of closure. As a family, they pulled together in ways that they had found difficult beforehand. It gave them a focal point. And that was a really lovely example of how ritual can really help us negotiate difficult things in life. Ritual has kind of rather grandiose associations. If you and I were sitting down now doing this interview face to face, without a doubt, we'd have a cup of tea in our hands or a cup of coffee. We'd come together, we'd sit down, you have a table. And these little human rituals are occasions which so much of human behavior operates through. So from the daily and the kind of mundane, of course, pots are at the core of that, cups, um, mugs, through to rituals surrounding death. They're occasions which enable us to come together as a community, whether it be a small or a larger community, to share and to exchange and process and understand and further our social lives. So, um, yes, with Jane, she came in quite late. As I said, the mother's ashes came back very late, but her two siblings found the whole process very cathartic. Mm. So there were stories behind everyone, and I tried to reflect them to a degree. But the end result is that the seven cinery jars, which are embodied, so they're completely personalized to the people they're commemorating, and then I gift them back to the families after the exhibition. I was wondering what was going to happen to their pots. No, I don't go and sell them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this isn't the first time, as you've pointed out, you've dealt with death. In 2012, you created the extraordinary Quietus exhibition, which started at MEMA in Middlesbrough, which contains scenery jars and sarcophagi, as well as an extraordinary piece, Reliquy for a Common Man, essentially a vessel where the clay body contained the ashes of a family member, Leslie James Cox. Now, I know you don't want to turn this into a confessional and I don't really want to poke about, but it is out there in the public domain and I am a journalist sure, and I have to sure. kind of ask these questions. So you lost your first son, Francis, in 1990, which must have been incredibly difficult. Was that the moment that provoked this interest in death, Julian? Um, I think whenever you go to a funeral... <laughs> You reflect and you're trying to process what happened. There was someone you knew who was, you know, around and part of your life to whatever degree. And then all of a sudden they're not there and then you're left with a memory. And so, of course, um, 
of course, these, you know, these are great rites of passage, you know, birth, marriage, and death, these great kind of rites of passage in life. Birth on the whole is positive and therefore it's really a celebration and very, you know, it's a very easy occasion to celebrate and to enjoy. Marriage, you know, has got that same positive undertone, you know, where new relationships and traditional terms, procreation would then follow and new lives emerge. Death obviously is problematic. So undoubtedly, my own personal experience has, has fed into that. I'm not trying to provoke sympathy or, you know, enlist sympathy. But what do I do as an artist? When you experience anything, if you're trying to make art relevant to wider life, then in some ways you process that and you build it indirectly or indirectly. Um, in one very short period of time, yes, uh, my first child and, and one of my parents died within months. And um, yeah, that was a shock. You know, I remember with my stepfather, who was a very dynamic, powerful individual, and there was this horrible coffin, this kind of mass-produced, chipboard, veneered, brass-plated coffin, which was, you know, didn't represent him at all. And it was just like there was a big disjuncture between him and what we were doing. At the funeral, there were readings, there was poetry, there was prose, there was music. There were all the things that we take solace in and use as an opportunity to reflect and remember and celebrate the person who died. But the material side of death is, on the whole, terribly impoverished. So how do I respond as an artist who makes things, who's interested in making things? It's not a given. I'm, I choose to make things, and I choose to make things, as I say, that operate within a social realm. And that's why I make pots. This extraordinary kind of human connection to pots throughout all of history in almost every single corner of the world. And so, of course, that fed into, you know, the thought of making work around that. But it's not just a confessional because as being someone who spends a huge amount of time in museums, if you go to museums, you will see in every museum a huge amount of funerary related work from reliquies through to grave goods that were buried with people in the past. And I realized that funerary related pots account for a huge percentage of all the pots that have been made over history. And that just then meant that everything then kind of came together in a, in a kind of seamless and interesting way. I'm one of those artists who does situate myself within history. And history is super important to me because it's about trying to understand, if you have a knowledge of history, I think you start to understand a little better, not definitively, where you are situated as an artist at this moment in time with everything that's preceded happened before you. So I suddenly realized that there was this enormous material wealth of pots that had been addressing exactly the same things that I was addressing at that moment in time. And as we all do when we experience death and bereavement and, you know, feel grief, it's a way of trying to kind of open up it's not a very fashionable position to take, but I do think that art has this extraordinary kind of universal capacity to kind of cross boundaries. I know all about post-colonial theory and, you know, kind of all the kind of, we cannot understand the cultural specifics of prehistorical cultures or whatever. I'm not naive enough to kind of think that we can do that. But I tell you, humans, we all walk, we all breathe, we all live and eat and die and have children. And there's not that much difference between 
virtually everyone who's preceded us as homo sapiens over the last, you know, however many tens of thousands of years. It's really interesting. The oldest grave was discovered last year, and it was a grave in Kenya that was 80,000 years old. And it was of a child. And it was two parents who obviously, when a child died, what did they do? They needed to mark whatever it was, their feelings and their response to this child dying. That's 80,000 years old. I'm tying into my interest in making art. I'm trying to acknowledge the past. I'm trying to offer ways that art can hopefully mediate this very difficult subject of death. And ultimately, at the end, it's not to kind of dwell on it or to make capital out of it, but it's to end up hopefully getting beyond the fear and the grief and starting to put the emphasis on people who died. You have to ask the families who were very kind to kind of collaborate with me on this, but I think they found it cathartic and a positive experience, but I'm loath to kind of put words into their mouth. Well, I just know they have, so I'll be straight about it. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Just to let you know, the Material Matters Fair, sponsored by lighting specialist Bert Frank, is returning to the Barge House from the 20th to the 23rd of September. Once again, each of the five floors will be doing something slightly different, but all will be related to materials. There'll also be a talks programme, some returning exhibitors, so the recycled aluminium giant Hydro will be there, as will the Wood Awards, Solid Wool, Hagen Hinderdahl, Mixed Metals and Blake Joshua, for example. And there'll be some exciting new names, such as the Tire Collective, Nova Vita Design, Anna Bridgewater, also known as Abalon, Plank, Biomatters, Taylor Horn, and Regular Concrete, with others to follow. If you're interested in taking part, do drop me a line at hello at materialmatters.design. That's hello at materialmatters.design. Can we talk about your background? You were born in Bristol. I think I'm right in saying your parents were very young when you came into the world. When did you first touch a piece of clay, Julian? I remember like it was yesterday. It wasn't yesterday, sadly, when I was seven years old. Maybe like many people who listen to this and who work in the visual arts, a lot of us are dyslexic. I'm very dyslexic. And school was, what's that great kind of euphemism? School was challenging. So I did terribly at school. But age seven, so I think it was first year junior, the teacher gave us one day a ball of clay. And she said, I'd like you to make a figure out of it. She said, but I don't want you to stick bits together. Make it as whole as you can. And I thought, oh, oh, that's easy. So you just shape it into a rough figure. Then where the legs are, you divide those, you subdivide those, and then you kind of subdivide the torso. And I modeled the arms out of the torso and the legs out of the lower part. And that was definitely the first time I ever remember getting praise at school. And it struck a chord with me and she displayed it in the side of the classroom. As clay does, it dries out and then someone touched it and knocked it over and it broke into lots of pieces. (laughs) (laughs) And probably I then had to wait from about the age of seven to 16, 17, when I was then allowed to try using clay again. Oh, wow. So that wasn't an epiphany and and you kind of, from then on, you had clay in your hands the whole time. It it took another, well, nearly a decade until you were back being able to work with the material again. Yeah, I had a decade of total abject failure at school, (laughs) academic, (laughs) the most unremarkable academic career possible. I think I scraped together five O-levels over three sittings, all at the lowest grades bar one. My school was combined into what was a brand new comprehensive in 69, I think. 
called Pimlico Comprehensive. And because that was a brand new comprehensive school, it had art rooms, but then it also had a ceramic room. And I eventually kind of allowed myself to enjoy and think that maybe art was something I could do. And I started doing ceramics in my sixth year. I think that was the second time I ever got a positive remark of anything. I did at school. <laughs> now, that makes it look like it's very reward focused, you know, oh, I'm just going to do the things. But actually, to kind of be slightly more serious, I do believe in the fact that artists should talk about ideas as clearly as they can and articulate them and reinforce what they're doing. I think that artists should try and position themselves in history. In other words, I think artists should try and articulate as much as possible about what they do. But there's some things that are beyond words. And I can't describe what it is about my hands, my fingers, when I work with clay. They found a home in a way. And it's about manipulation. It's about manipulation of a plastic material and then what you can do with that. I wonder how you feel when you're working with clay, Julian. Is that something you can describe? Oh, gosh, what an incredibly difficult question. Well, I feel all the pressures of, oh, my God, you know, this is not working out. Oh, this is difficult. Uh, Oh, actually, I don't feel anything. It's just, I think it's just a natural kind of extension of who I am and what I do. So it's totally, totally, totally unconscious. But I don't feel anything, really. It's just an extension of me or my hands, if I can say that. Sorry, that's, that's a terrible answer. Well, no, it isn't. You studied initially at Camberwell, were you always going to go to art school? Was it always going to be clay? Was it always going to be Camberwell? My family were involved in creative practice to varying degrees. So four of my five parents went to art school. So I kind of grew up in a world where art was embedded in life. But actually that's quite difficult because as a child, you're growing up and you're seeing these extraordinary things that adults are doing, which can be incredibly intimidating. I always felt sorry for David Leach being the son of Bernard Leach. Mm, <laughs> you know, mm. how on earth do you kind of carve out an identity, let alone a career or anything, when you have such a huge figurehead as a parent? There's a degree of, oh my goodness, what I'm doing is rubbish compared to all the things that these grown-ups are doing. But somehow kind of, I don't know, aged about 16, 15, 16, I allowed myself to start to be interested and enjoy it and be stimulated by it. It's a challenge, you know, and it's work. And you have to think and you have to work really hard. You have to think hard, but you have to kind of practice. So I kind of allowed myself to do it. And then in a way, I did end up going to art college, but I don't think anyone would have predicted that a year or two years, three years earlier down the line. Right. So I wasn't one of these kind of child prodigies where just, you know, magic flowed out of a pencil on a piece of paper. <laughs> and actual reality, as you know, graphic kind of mark making is still not necessarily a strength. Somehow it's about forming and manipulating material for me. Right. But yes, I went to Camberwell and I made sculpture at Camberwell. And I think I kind of got, well, A, there was a natural inclination and I was really interested in the work that I was doing. But I think I got kind of very strongly influenced by the need that all art students are under to produce a kind of signature body of work for a degree show. 
you have to do something that is unique, that is you. And in a way, instead of letting that process of maturation and exploration take place, which really should be a life and is a lifelong process, it's all condensed down into three years. And then reality, if the first year is an introduction, it's kind of condensed down into two years. And then maybe you're making your show and you're finally... And I think I got sidetracked by all the kind of pressures and demands. I ended up making sculpture, which I stood by, but it wasn't good enough for me. I was lucky enough, I did get to go to the RCA. And then I kind of turned my back on all the sculptural work I made because I just knew I wanted to make parts. I didn't know why particularly. It was rather dumb, inarticulate expression. But I just knew that what had drawn me to working in ceramics with clay in the first place was this notion of pots. They somehow spoke to me. And then at the RCA, I was extremely fortunate. Philip Rawson was teaching at the RCA. He started to teach at the RCA when I was there. I think I was at the RCA during a pretty undistinguished time in terms of maybe staff who taught there. And it wasn't necessarily the most prominent time in terms of people who graduated. There were some great people who've now got very good established careers. You know, Magdalene was yeah, behind me and Magdalene Odundo. Yeah, Magdalene Odundo and then Jennifer Lee and Annie Turner were the year behind that. So students come through regardless. But Philip, oh my God, Philip just turned an inarticulate desire into something comprehensible by talking and showing us the extraordinary complexion of ceramic history. And if I recommend any book to anyone who's remotely interested in any aspect of ceramics, it will be the book he published in 1971, which is called Ceramics, part of the Oxford Appreciation of the Art series published by Oxford University Press. And he doesn't care about fine art versus craft debates. He doesn't even care about charting historical movements over the previous century, two centuries, five centuries, he goes back to the very earliest pots and he shows this extraordinary kind of thread that has operated through human culture, really as soon as we started to settle as a species. And before that, actually, he shows this extraordinary thread of these material objects that have played these unbelievably pivotal roles in human culture, these things called pots. And so, in a way, Philip was able to kind of contextualise inarticulate yearnings and interest and he kind of opened a door and i've been trying to carry on walking through that door since then Mm. before this interview i was leafing through a new book by alan graves who's senior curator of ceramics and glass at the vna called studio ceramics he describes you as being part of a and i quote gentle functionalism movement is that a description you recognize gentle function well i i know the book is just been published yeah literally just and i haven't seen it yet so that's news to me (laughs) you're gonna have to trust me on this oh i believe you i believe you (laughs) gentle functionalism i have to process that i think okay all right because i know you're not particularly fond of the word functional no i'm not and the reason why is because it's such a reductive term I had some visitor to the studio, an American curator once, who kind of arrived and said, well, tell me, Julian, do you make functional work or sculptural work? And I said, I'm sorry, I just don't accept either of those divisions. And, you know, the answer is no and no. Pots, for me, they're redolent of so many elements of creative practice. They're terribly complex objects because they can do so many things. To kind of define something by the term functional, is very reductive and I think very limiting. 
I want to see challenge anyone to show me an object that is only functional, that doesn't have any other elements or dimensions to it. If we took an American diner mug, which is kind of an archetypal of modern 20th century design, thick, heavy, kind of almost insulating porcelain, so thick that you can drop it on the floor, it doesn't break, smooth rounded corners, so there's nothing to chip, got a really strong handle, it can go through dishwasher millions of times and, you know, survive. That object is as redolent of mid 20th century American ideas of design in modernity as it is functional. So I think it's limiting to actually talk about things in terms of functional. Let's park functionalism. I'm intrigued that your paired back aesthetic and interest in these everyday forms that you developed. I mean, was that a reaction against the generation that came before you, which would have been the likes of Alison Britton, who's been on this podcast, and Karen McNichol, famous for testing the outer limits of function, and who were essentially postmodernists? No, it's not a reaction against them. It's actually an expression of who I am. It happened to be very much at odds with the absolutely dominant (laughs) era of my formative years. And I took exception to a lot of the arguments that were banded about in that period of time. What I make is who I am. So it's like someone's kind of gait. How do they walk? You know, that's their natural kind of gait, the timbre of your voice. So my work is an extension of who I am. And I'm kind of imprisoned by that in a way. I think I should stop talking on that point. It is who I am. I can't go any further than that. So I I seem to have a kind of a natural tendency to gravitate towards maybe making forms that for me have a sense of structure and the kind of clarity of form. If you like, you could equate that with a cognitive thinking or reasoning, a kind of intellectual dimension. If you take that to an extreme, it becomes, you know, banal and inhuman. And so I try and counter that very analytical, formalist way of working and thinking and try to imbue what I make with some softer kind of dimensions as well. If we're going to say the head and the heart, you know, in that old cliche, my desire and my interest in making parts was certainly way out of fashion. It could not have been further removed from fashion and the predominant kind of trends. So when I left college, uh, when I left the RSA in 1981, I had to refer to myself as something. <laughs> and it was like all my colleagues were saying, oh, yes, I'm a ceramicist. Or if you're a Pelosi influence, you were a ceramicist. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm a sculptor. I'm a ceramic sculptor, I'm a ceramic artist, I'm a make a designer maker, you know, all the permutations. This is before maker kind of emerged as a generic term. And maker mm. emerged certainly after 81. And there's one side of me that says, oh, you know, man the maker. I kind of quite like that. But actually I think maker is a very loaded term because it's a denial of what you do. I decided that I was interested in parts, I was interested in making them. And my ideas were still relatively undeveloped then. And I thought, well, if I haven't got the confidence to call myself a potter, because, you know, that's what I'm interested in doing. If I haven't got the confidence, then no one else is going to have the confidence. And all my peers laughed. (laughs) They rolled around (laughs) laughing because to make pots was seen as so passe, so reductive, so irrelevant. Everyone else was making art and there was me making pots. I didn't fit into the Anglo oriental leech tradition 
Sorry, I apologize for using that phrase. I didn't fall into the Leech tradition. I didn't fall into the vernacular revival of English schlipware. I didn't fall into the decorative thing of, you know, all the dots and doodles and pink splashes that typified a lot of postmodernist work because that just wasn't me. It didn't feel right. And I didn't just want to make work that referenced the ideas of what pots have done in the past. I wanted to make contemporary equivalents. You know, we have these great kind of genres of creative expression, be it literature, you know, be it poetry, be it dance, painting, pottery, whatever. And these genres are not fixed. You look at the history of them over even just the last century and they've changed enormously. These genres are there as these great streams of creative potential for artists to interpret in a way that feels relevant to them as individuals and the time they live in. And I just feel that there is no limit on making pots, but there also are objects that stimulate touch. And in stimulating touch, they remind us that we're physical creatures. They're objects that you can see that do carry ideas, as Kaju wanted to avoid. The vessel emerged during my formative era which was making references to use. And I thought, well, actually, I think it's much more interesting if you make objects that can be used, because then that opens up so many other avenues of possibilities. You've talked about your fascination with history, and writing has always been a a vital part of your practice. How does your writing affect your pot making or your art? Well, in a way, this kind of comes back to what we've just been talking about. You know, some artists kind of do want to draw a line with history and Okay, maybe it's not a very good analogy, but what comes to mind is Khmer Rouge and Year Zero. (laughs) (laughs) We're going back to Pol Pot. I wasn't expecting that to crop up in this interview, I have to say. I don't live in Year Zero. I live in uh, thousands and thousands of years down the line of human culture. So history is important in terms of understanding who we are, because you can see where we came from and what we did. When I was in my formative years, brutally speaking, the history of crafts hadn't been written. But there had been quite a lot of writing in certain quarters, and that was mainly by Leech and, uh, you know, Leech, Leech's kind of acolytes, second and third generation. But that was an incredibly limited interpretation of history. So because I was kind of wrestling with what I wanted to make and how I wanted to kind of position myself and what references I could draw on, I realized that in a way we had an oral history. Oh, you know... Leach did this, or Leach said that, or Leach didn't do this. I grew up in a very black and white world, very divided world. This is the history of British studio ceramics we're talking about, isn't it? We're talking about the history of British studio ceramics. Well, it's this stupid division of is it pot or is it sculpture? Very reductive, narrow, black and white and confrontational world that I grew up in. There were exhibitions, you know, in like the 80s of Does It Pour as a title? One very well-known person, you know, on public record from that time is saying, Ram Potts are boring. I can say it now because he's dead, but Ewan Henderson described Hans Koper as a good militarist. It was a very, very combative and divided, divided world. It's like Man United or Man City, you know, United, you were kind of in a tribe. And by definition, you were in a tribe and therefore the other tribe was wrong. I always felt that things actually were much subtler, much more complicated and much more interesting. So I started doing, I kind of, it started with an MPhil, looking at ceramic language and that grew into a PhD. And in the end, the PhD was about 
what I decided was hadn't been done is no one had written a history of critical writing in ceramics. So my PhD was a historiography. It was a thesis that was a history of writing about pots and writing that was in the public domain. The title is Critical Writing on English Studio Pottery, 1910 to 1940. I literally turned over every single page of the Connoisseur, the Burlington, the Studio Magazine, you name it, all the journals, many newspapers, all the broadsheets. The implication was that there wasn't much of a history to research. It turns out that it was the very opposite. Not to have a history is bad enough, but to have a history and then forget about it is actually criminal. And that's what we did as a discipline. And I say we because, you know, I'm part of the kind of wider ceramic community amongst other communities. I, you know, I think we all need to up our game there because the material is so complex and so interesting and it's so relevant to life now in the future, you know, in this digital world where screens and pixels are dominating to have a primary subject as a material that you can physically engage with through touch and reinforce the fact that, you know, we're flesh and blood. My goodness, if that's not relevant to the future, I don't know what is. Very good. Julian, that's a very lovely place to leave it. Thank you very, very much for your time. I really appreciated it. It was great. Well, thank you very much for asking me, Grant. As always, it's a pleasure talking to you. <laughs> Thank you. Art, Death and the Afterlife runs at the Sainsbury Centre until the 17th of September 2023. To find out more about Julian, go to julianstair.com. My thanks go to the series and fair sponsor, the brilliant lighting specialist Bert Frank. You can find out more about them at bertfrank.co.uk. And to the specialist auction house and art consultancy Mac. And remember, its latest auction is now showing online with the auction taking place on the 25th of May. For all details, go to maclondon.com. As ever, there are images from the interviews on our Instagram page, materialmatters.design, and you can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to our newsletter, and lots of other stuff at materialmatters.design. Finally, this is really important too. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message to the importance of material, skill, craft, and design to a whole new audience. Next week, I'll be talking to Donna Wilson about her relationship with wool and much more besides. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>